All right. Good morning, Illuminate. Welcome, everybody, joining us online as well. Guys, I'm so glad that I get to be with you today. Last week, Pastor Hudson shared that, uh, you know, he, uh, he played in the Turkey Bowl. And he said that afterward, you know, he had a few aches and pains. Well, I also played in the Turkey Bowl. And afterward, I had an MRI on my knee. That's the difference between playing in your 50s and playing in your 20s, okay? So the good news is now the mind-body connection is complete. I'm old. I'm old. That's a straight-up old guy injury. So anyways, I'm glad that I'm here. I'll be a little less mobile. I'm not going to lie to you. I am on some painkillers. So we'll see what happens. Should be fun. Um, Pastor Scott mentioned Christmas Eve. Guys, here's the deal. Five services. Info is on that flyer. Like he said, the flyer is not for us. It's for our friends, our family. The statistics show that if you personally invite someone, we have this in digital format. That's cool. If you personally invite somebody, chances are, they will say yes. So we like to tell people, don't say no for them. Here's what you can expect. The theme, right behind me. Cradle, cross, crown. What started the cradle eventually led to the crown. What started in Bethlehem eventually ended up in heaven. The cross is that bridge. Angel announces, behold, great joy. Oh, cool, a lot of things bring me joy. What brings you joy? What's just joy to the world? A baby. Huh? Yeah, once you understand who that baby is and what he came to do, that's the source of joy. So here's my commitment to you. You invite your friends and family to church, I will invite them to change. You invite your friends and family to church, I will invite them to change. We've all been there. I love what the Bible says. We are all formerly what? Something. We're all formerly sinners. And even now, it's a, it's a constant struggle, you know? Let's just be real, right? No perfect people, just people who are united at the foot of the cross because the great unifier in all of humanity is that we're all sinners born into a dysfunctional relationship with the God who created us. You can't argue that. Why is the world jacked up? I share some responsibility in that. That's what the Bible calls sin. So. That's why we preach Jesus. That's why we um, lift up the scriptures. Um, for those of you who are newer to the church, we have something special just for you. Even if you haven't signed up, don't worry about it. Today you can show up at 11.45 right after this service. We call it First Light, just an introduction to who we are and what we do here. We'll serve you lunch, and that's in the high school room, which is just a couple walls behind me. So here's where we're at. For quite a few months, we've been opening up this ancient text called Genesis, and we've been discovering how incredibly relevant it is to our own lives. So many people are quick to dismiss the Bible. And there was a point in my life where I, I fell into this category, you know, thinking it's antiquated, it's out of touch, it's, it's full of myths and fables. Couldn't have been more wrong. Each week, we've been realizing how incredibly relevant and timely these words are, which is what we would expect since they come to us from the author, creator, and sustainer of all life. Therefore, God knows how life is to be lived best. So why don't we just let God speak for himself? And that's what we've been doing. Last week, we were in Genesis chapters, uh, or two weeks ago, in 44 and 45. 
And it's kind of like this crescendo buildup. The last half of the book is really devoted to the life of this one guy, Joseph. It's been 20 years since his brothers betrayed him. If you've ever felt pain, there's no pain like family pain. He gets betrayed, sold out by his own brothers. They want him dead. They decide to make a profit off of him. They sell him into slavery, throw him into a pit. From there, he's judged wrongly. From the pit, he goes into the prison. But the hand of God is with this young man. Why? Because he is with God. If you want to be blessed in this life, simple principle. God always blesses the greatest likeness to his son, Jesus Christ, period. That's the path to blessing. Doesn't mean you're going to be pain-free. That's a part of living in a fallen world. But this man, Joseph, God is with him because he is with God. God elevates him from the pit to the prison, to the penthouse. Through a series of dreams that are revealed to Pharaoh, through Joseph, there's a a severe famine that hits the land of Egypt. Pharaoh elevates Joseph to the number two position. He's essentially the prime minister in charge of food, storage, and distribution. Seven years of famine, seven years of abundance. During the abundance, he stores it up. Essentially, he becomes the savior of the nation of Israel or, uh, well, yeah, of Israel, his family, but also of Egypt. 20 years in the making, this reunion comes. His family, they're starving in the land of Canaan. They have to go to Egypt to get food. And who do they have to go through? Little brother. They have no idea it's him. After a lot of drama, he finally reveals his true identity to his brothers. And it's incredibly emotional. The tears flow. He has in his hand, it's quite remarkable, He has in his hands the power of life and death over the very people that mistreated him. He's in front of his abusers. He could annihilate them with no consequence to himself. And instead, his heart swells with grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness. That's big. How do you get there? You don't get there unless you're close to God. It's a humanly impossible. You just don't get there unless you're close to God and you have in some measure the heart of God within your heart. So he says to the guys, it's me. They freak out. They can't believe it. And he says, bring dad. Bring dad. Bring the whole family here to Egypt, and I'll take care of you. So well, what happens is the family comes to Egypt, and, and it's really interesting because what we're about to read actually sets up the history of the nation of Israel. Because as they enter the land of Egypt, these Hebrews... Jacob's sons, 12 of them, will each give birth or will essentially give rise to a tribe. These 12 tribes will become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Israel and Jacob, same person. His name gets changed. And they're really prosperous within Egypt's borders. In fact, they're so prosperous and they become so many, so plentiful. I mean, they're like having baby after baby after baby. And the Egyptians are looking at them like, hey, uh, we've got a lot of Hebrews within our borders This could get really bad for us if they decide to go rogue. So let's enslave them. And that's what happens for 400 years. You ever wonder how the Israelites wound up in Egypt? Well, the famine pushes them there. But then you ever wonder why they end up in captivity? The text tells you why. This is all part of their history. In fact, our Jewish friends celebrate these events now. The second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, it's all about these chapters. But there's one particular event called the Passover that our Jewish friends celebrate to this day as part of their history. What we're going to read actually helps you understand how all of that has come about. So 
there's more to this journey leaving Canaan and going to Egypt than what you realize for uh, Jacob and his family. He's going to need to know that God is with him because this is kind of a big deal, and I'll show you why in a second. Chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel, again, same man, Jacob, set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. So this place, Beersheba, it's on the edge of the desert that leads into Egypt. It's a special place because it was the place where his dad, Isaac, and his grandfather, Abraham, offered sacrifice to God. But this is a really big deal because he's leaving the promised land. That's the land of Canaan. That's the land where God said, I'm going to give this to you as a possession. And back then, land was everything. If you had land, you had security. Now he's leaving it behind. And he's on the edge. We know what it's like to look out over the, the, the sort of the vastness of an empty desert. And that's where he's at. And he needs to know that God is with him because when he enters Egypt, here's the thing about Egyptians, and we read this a couple weeks ago, Egyptians did not associate with Hebrews at all. They had an opportunity to eat together. And the text tells us, and you're gonna read it again today, Egyptians despised Hebrews. And now the Hebrews are like, what's up, Egyptians? We're coming into your turf. So this could go really bad. So this guy needs to know that what he's stepping out of and stepping into God is going to be with him. Same is true for you. God is going to ask you to step out of things and step into things. I had a great conversation with some folks after the first service, and essentially they approached me and they said, you know, I don't want to be told I'm wrong. And I said, me neither. (laughs) Who does? I said, let me ask you this. Do you have kids? Yeah. What if they told you you don't want them... uh, they didn't want you to tell them that, that, that they're wrong? What if your kids told you as a parent, hey, don't tell me what's wrong? Would you struggle with that? Yeah. So sometimes when God asks you to step out of something and step into something, what you're stepping out of was actually wrong. What you're stepping into is what is right. And anytime God asks you to step out of something, what he's, what he's saying to you is that's not giving you life but this is. He needs to know that God is with him. How do we know that God is with us? Well, the cross represents many, many things for the Christian, but perhaps of, of all, it represents that God is not only with us, but he is for us. I love Romans eight thirty one. What then shall we say, Paul writes, to all these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. Uh, There is no earthly power that can compete against the power of God. Now, this doesn't mean that you'll have a pain-free or stress-free life. Again, we live in a fallen world, uh, but there is no earthly opposition that comes close to the presence and power of God. So it feels like at times we lose daily battles, but in the end, you know, we, we know how the story finishes. The final chapter has been written, and Jesus wins. And if you're on his side, you win too. It doesn't mean that there won't be some speed bumps along the way. And Jacob anticipates those speed bumps and he needs to know, God, this is a big step of faith for me. Are you with me? God always provides us what we need. We have a saying around here at Illuminate that we've uh, we've become fond of. Where God guides, he provides. 
So God wants to show Jacob that he's, that he's there. Verse, uh, verse 2, 46. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Jacob says, here I am. He says, I am the God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. And it's exactly what we see happening. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. Hey, don't sweat it. I know I made these promises. Canaan's going to be your land. That's the promised land. You're going to go to Egypt, but don't worry. I'm going to keep my promise. You're coming back. I'm going to bring you back. And Joseph's own hand, your son's own hand, will close your eyes. So, right, so Jacob is looking out over across that vast desert wilderness, and he takes that first step. And the text, on two separate occasions, the language is important here, all right? I'm going to break it down for you. The Hebrew explicitly says, he entered Egypt. This is the exact same phraseology that was used to describe Noah entering the ark. That is not a mistake. That would not get lost on the reader. So in other words, Egypt is kind of like Jacob's ark experience. At Noah's time, there was so much chaos in the world. And God's like, don't worry, I got you, I got your family, enter. There's a lot of chaos surrounding Jacob. God says, yeah, I, I know you're going into some hostile territory, but um, go ahead, enter your own ark that is Egypt, and you'll see that I can rescue you just like I rescued Noah. So it's pretty cool language that continues, uh, verse 26. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. By the way, when you read through the Bible, it's not myth. I've said this before. A lot of people think the Bible's filled with mythological stories and it's fable and all that kind of stuff. It's not written in that style because you get these numbers and facts and figures. In no way do they advance the story. Why? Because they're a part of the historical narrative, Okay. Um, so 66 persons with the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family, which went uh, to Egypt. So 70 people enter. By the time they leave, which is going to be, spoiler alert, 400 years later, they are a massive population. Why? Because God said they would be. Now, Jacob sent Judah, that's son number four, ahead of him. Remember, he's got 12 sons. For a long, a long time, he's thought that Joseph was dead because the older boys defrauded him, deceived him, told him that wild animals destroyed Joseph when, in fact, they did. Uh, went heaven to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. This is really cool. I love putting uh, myself back in the, this. This, is, this would have been a crazy uh, experience for dad. He hasn't seen Joseph in a long, long time, a couple decades. For years, he thought he was dead. He hears he's alive. And Joseph goes out to meet him. But what's the text say? He makes his chariot ready. Joseph is among the most powerful men in the known world at this time. He's an Egyptian for all intents and appearances. But he still worships the Hebrew God. He would have the appearance of Egyptian royalty. Um, you ever heard of Egyptian cotton? That's a real thing, right? The Egyptians had cotton that was capable of being woven so fine that it's said to have been almost transparent. Joseph was looking sharp. Last time his dad saw him, he had a special coat made for him. That was pretty nice too. But the brothers just dipped it in blood, shredded it, and said, Dad, 
Joseph was eaten by wild animals, and dad bought it. Actually, they sold him. Now, he's looking crisp. He's looking sharp. And it says he prepared his chariot. This is the nicest ride. Whatever your fantasy drive is, let me tell you, this is better. In its day, this would have been better. And he's rolling out to see dad that he hasn't seen in a long time. And it's super emotional. As soon as Joseph appeared for him, Joseph throws his arms around his father and he wept for a long time. And then dad said to Joseph, I'm ready to go. It doesn't get any better than this. I thought you were dead. You're alive. Look at you, boy. I'm ready to die. They will, in fact, have 17 more years together. But you know, this, this incident reminds me of, of an incident in the life of Jesus. When Jesus was just a toddler, the New Testament tells us that his parents, Mary and Joseph, good God-fearing Jews, they took their baby boy to have him dedicated at the temple. Meanwhile, there's this old man hanging out at the temple. But God has spoken to him and said, listen, his name is Simeon. Simeon, before you die, you're going to see the Lord's anointed. In other words, you're going to see the Messiah. The one that was prophesied about in your Old Testament, that's the Bible of Jesus' day. Like the Bible that, that Jesus would have referenced in his time, that's the Old Testament. Okay, what you have in, in your Bibles. That's the Bible of Jesus' day. And it had all these prophecies about a forthcoming Messiah. But it was like crazy specificity, like where he'd be born, Bethlehem his manner of crucifixion, or his manner of death by crucifixion. That was stated in 700 BC before crucifixion was invented by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. All these crazy details. So you could put all these puzzle pieces together and the face on the box is Jesus, that's the Messiah. And, and so, so Simeon is told, you're gonna see the Messiah before, before you die. And so he's hanging out at the temple and here come all these you know, happy young couples and they've got their, their toddlers and they're bringing them up to the temple to dedicate them. And, and he's like, is it this one? No, is it this one? No. What about this one? No, no. That's him. That's him. And so he makes his way over and he grabs toddler Jesus. And he's like, I'm good. I can die now. I have seen the Lord's anointed. What's interesting is that Joseph's family will look at him as their physical savior. He saved them from famine, saved them from starvation. But the world will look at Jesus as their spiritual savior who has saved them from an eternal separation from the God who created them. This is why Jesus is a better Joseph. Did you catch that? Jesus is a better Joseph in that way. Both are saviors but not in the same way. So this is a super sweet and tender moment for this father and son. Verse 31, then Joseph said to his brothers, I gotta have a plan because as Hebrews entering the land of Egypt, it's not gonna go well for you. Like they don't play nice. So I've got this plan that I think will, will help uh, facilitate your movement here into Egypt. Um, so here's the, I will go up and I will speak to Pharaoh 
And I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household, who they were living in the land of Canaan, hey, they've come to me. And the men are shepherds. They tend livestock. They have brought along their flocks and herds and everything that they own. This wouldn't be out of the question because the famine was so severe in Egypt that it would affect Canaan as well. So when Pharaoh calls you in, brothers, he says to them, and he's going to ask you, what do you do? What's your occupation? So when Pharaoh calls you in, here's what you need to say to him. You should answer, well, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. we're, We're like simple shepherds. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Okay, so there you go. This is why when you read the story of Jesus and uh, in his birth, it's pretty cool because angels make the announcement of his birth to who? Shepherds. Why shepherds? Shepherds were the lowest of the low on the social ladder, and yet they get the message, the Messiah's been born. You should go check him out. You know why? Because Jesus, Jesus is for everybody. So, so um, this is um, a masterpiece of diplomacy by Joseph, really good at what he does. He's got this plan. Boys, stay on script. It'll be good for you. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, verse 1, chapter 47, my father and my brothers with their flocks and their herds, all they possess, they've come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, well, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. Good job, boys. Exactly on point. It's exactly what we want you to say. Um, but, uh, but then they go off script. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. They make the ask that they weren't supposed to make. And, and Joseph is like giving them the side eye. <laughs> Boys, Really? Boys, you had like two sentences to memorize. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Go ahead. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So so the plan works. The only thing that's left is for dad to meet Pharaoh, this is kind of crazy because if you picture the simple shepherd, um, a nomad, he's in the midst of opulence that he can't even fathom. Verse seven, then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blesses Pharaoh, probably having something to do with having a long life and being uh, successful. But I want you to notice something here. There is good that comes to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and there is good that comes to Joseph's own family. How is that possible? It's made possible because Joseph is living his life for God. And when you live your life from God, what happens is the goodness in your life spills out onto those around you. Is that happening for you? Did you catch what I'm saying? See, you're blessed to be a blessing to other people. And, and, and so it's like God blesses you as you walk in obedience to him. And then what happens is you end up being a blessing to all these people around you, even unintentionally. That's a big part of Christian parenting, by the way, right? You can't control what your kids do. 
but you know what gives your kids life. And what gives your kids life is laying your life down day in and day out, submitting your will to the will of God. And you end up being filled with God that spills over onto those around you. So that's exactly what's happening here. So there's a question Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And this is more than a, hey, tell me how, how old you are. This is more like, tell me your life story. So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. He says, I'm 130 years old. And let me just give you a summarize of what those years have been like. Well, not many of them. There are few. The other word I would use to describe my life is evil. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. So in other words, what he says is, well, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I haven't lived as long as my ancestors, and I've had a lot of heartache. And if you look back over the life of Jacob, this is an understatement. What are the two main sources of heartache in his life? Quite possibly the two main sources of your own heartache. Number one, his own wayward actions. That is, the heartache that was brought into his life was as a result of when he was like, forget God. I'll just do my own thing. I know better than God. I'm just going to pursue my will. I'll take God off the throne. I'll put myself on the throne. And I'm just going to, I'm going to live as if I'm the supreme being. And that caused a lot of heartache in his life. The other thing that's caused a lot of heartache in his life are his kids. Haven't lived as long as my ancestors, and it's been really rough. Life has been hard. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh, second blessing, went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land. And here's how we know. It was in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. So here's what we know. History tells us that the Pharaoh, Ramses II, in the land of Goshen, he diverted, uh, he made canals that diverted river water into this land that was arid and made it very, uh, very productive. And it was sort of on the edge of Egyptian uh, empire. So it was not, not in the heart of it, but on the edge. So it was a great place for these guys to settle in. Hey, there's only 70 of them for now. They explode in population. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt. So that's how they got there, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, and this becomes the problem. This is what leads to the exodus. They become so prosperous, and they multiply so many times over and over and over that the Egyptians take notice. Again, the story of exodus. So Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So they had 17 years together, restoring their relationship after being separated for 20. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, son, if I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. Time out. We talked about this a few weeks ago. In our day, a simple handshake will do. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, can we agree on something? Will you do something for me? Like, can we shake on it? Well, back in the day, it was like, hey, uh, let's agree on it. Right? We're like, what's going on there? Well, we talked about how it's a, it's a little bit more than a simple handshake. This area is a very um, delicate area for a man. And so when another man places his hand in that area, 
what you're saying is, I trust you. I trust you that you're not going to hurt me. I trust you that you're not going to take advantage of me. Do not bury me in Egypt, he says. But let me lie with my fathers back in the land of Canaan. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place, he answered. Joseph said, I'll, I'll, I'll do it, Dad. Jacob says, I'm serious about this, boy. Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So he makes this dying request. And I think this is a direct affirmation of his belief in what God said. I'm going to take you back there. Um, what they couldn't know is that it would uh, take 400 years to make this happen. He's going to die in Egypt. And 400 years later, his bones will be transferred back into the promised land. One of the overarching messages through the book of Genesis, I hate to tell you this, but God's timing is so unlike ours. I'm sorry. It is so unlike ours. I mean, I I would think that, you know, dad thought, oh, you know, maybe in a few decades we'll get back there and we'll make it happen. Even Jesus' own disciples, Jesus said, hey, um, the kingdom of God is at hand. And I think the guys close to him were like, cool, we want to be ready, you know, right? It's like, it's like death, burial, pretty depressing, resurrection, yeah, man, all-time high. All right, it's on, game on, game on. When are you coming back? When are you coming back? Well, it's been a while. And in fact, Jesus knew this because he didn't mess with their minds. He didn't say, let me give you the time and the date. Right, because if I give you the time and the date, then you know what's going to happen. You all are going to look real busy the minute before I, rec- I, re- I come back. Right? Everybody's going to be like, "Oh, look busy." Jesus is coming back. No, we're not going to do that. Here's the point. He just says, "Nobody knows the exact time, hour, day." So here's the deal. Here's what you need to know: be ready. And then he launches into all these parables about people who are engaged in things and they're distracted by things, and all of a sudden an event happens and it catches them unaware. Don't worry about the time. Just worry about being busy. What are you busy with? You're busy with expanding the kingdom of God, making Jesus known, lifting him up. So the story of um, Jacob and Joseph, we'll end it next week, but it ends on this crescendo statement by Joseph. And basically, he says, here's the summary of, of my life story. All the evil that's happened to me, all the mistreatment, the injustice, God took all of that and he made good out of it. But it took a while, a lot longer than he wanted it. But in the end, that's exactly what God did. So in Romans chapter 15, it says that the things that are written in the past are written for us today so that we could find hope and encouragement, even more so because we live on this side of the cross and because of the overwhelming evidence. If you're open-minded and open-hearted, there's overwhelming evidence to place your faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a, game, it's a total game changer, right? It's a total game changer. We should have way more faith than the patriarchs because we live on this side of the cross. So here's the, here's the message that, that comes from Joseph himself, all right, for the book. Everything that comes into your life, whether you regard it as good or evil, is actually meant to prosper you, you to prosper you in God's time. Let me say that again. Everything that God brings into your life, whether you regard it as good or evil, is meant to prosper you in God's time.
Is this not the message of Jesus on the cross himself? God would take the greatest evil, an innocent man gets crucified, pretty gnarly death, and yet God flips the script and it leads to the salvation of all those who believe in him. So Father, I'm very appreciative of every person that's in the room right now because no one is here by accident. We all have our stories. We're all formerly somethings. As I said, imperfect people looking to a perfect Jesus who did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He made right all that was wrong, took upon himself the consequences of our waywardness so that when God looks at us, he looks at us through the lens of his son, forgiven. God is holy, God is just. He cannot turn a blind eye to all the wrongs we do. He has to be consistent to his nature, God. That's who you are, and that's why we desperately need the cross. We're grateful for these stories that give us hope and encouragement in this day. God, I pray for, for everybody in the room because in some way we all have these, these um, concurrent tracks of, of great joy and great sadness, but you're using both and you use those things to get our attention and to draw us closer to you. I pray for those who might be here and maybe haven't stepped foot in church in a long time. And man, you know, just God, by your spirit, keep talking at them. So many of us are grateful that you didn't give up on us, but you kept after us, you pursued us. We're grateful now and we'll be grateful for all eternity. We ask it in the name of the one who makes it all possible and his name is Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen.